Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran New York City jazz saxophonist, composer, historian, radio producer, and educator, Bill Krechner. He reached out to the show, and we were happy to talk to him about a long, fruitful journey in the world of jazz. He was born in Youngstown, Ohio, and graduated in 1975 from the Manhattan College in New York City. From there until 1980... He lived in Washington, D.C., and since July of 1980, he has lived in New York City, and over the years, his arrangements have been picked up and recorded by Dizzy Gillespie, Lee Conant, and so many others. And he's played with the likes of Anita O'Day, Sheila Jordan, Larry Elgar, Tito Puente, and he's got great stories to back all of it up. He's full of wisdom, history, and hope, and joy. Joe Domino, Neon Jazz, what's going on, man? We are going on, apparently. Yeah, we are going on, apparently, yeah. Hey, thanks for reaching out to me, man. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It was nice I to read love- that interview with Christian. Yeah, I, I always love how these things can kind of daisy chain into their own little uh, little organisms. So, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you, uh, you dug it and you reached out, for sure. What do you want to talk about? Well, let's get into your life and music. Let's talk about, you know, the road that you've been down. And I think probably before we get into anything else, the, the, the thing that's the most ever-present in our lives and the collective world at hand is this pandemic that we're going through and what it's done to the world of jazz. So how have you been holding up since last March into this, hopefully, recovery period of, of our lives? Oh, pretty well, all things considered. My wife and I have been vaccinated recently, so we got that done. Good. And of course, that's, that's an important thing. And otherwise, I've continued to do my teaching. I teach in the jazz programs at the New School and Manhattan School of Music here in New York City. And so, because both of those programs have chosen to go online via Zoom, I've been able to continue teaching my courses at both schools, both teaching ensembles at the New School and um, teaching two courses at Manhattan School of Music. I teach a Music of Duke Ellington course and a Music of Miles Davis course at Manhattan. So all of those have been transferred online in the past year, and, and I've been able to do them successfully and keep them going, and the students keeping their educations going, all of which is good, of course. Well, you're originally from Youngstown, Ohio, so you're relatively Midwest, and... I want to know, when did you get the jazz bug? How did all of this begin for you, this journey? When I was about five years old, um, which was 1958, and a TV show called Peter Gunn came on the air. And the music for those, those episodes was written by Henry Mancini, and that was kind of Mancini's breakthrough. Uh, he chose to use jazz for all his background music with some of the best jazz players in L.A. recording the scores. And that's the first music I can really remember hearing and really making uh, an impact on me. I mean, the the harmonies, the the, the rhythms, you know, everything about it. And that really turned me on to music. And then a couple years later, I started taking clarinet lessons and everything kind of, mushroom from there. What about your first live jazz show? What what was that and how did that how did that impact you? Oh, uh, well, that's an interesting story actually. Um, 
just before my 12th birthday in 1965, I had already developed kind of a neophyte taste for jazz. So my parents took me to an evening at the Pittsburgh Jazz Festival. Pittsburgh is about an hour and so it's drive away from Youngstown. So uh, George Ween, who of course produces the Newport Jazz Festival, was producing this three-day festival in Pittsburgh. Uh, and the bill for this, the night that my parents and I went to was um, a, a local opening group, Earl Hines with a trio, Carmen McRae with Norman Simmons' trio, uh, the Stan Guest Quartet with Gary Burton, Steve Swallow, and Roy Haynes, John Coltrane's Quartet with McCoy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, and Elvin Jones, and the Duke Ellington Orchestra. This is one evening. Wow. So um, I, I, I think I, I decided that evening that that was going to be my vocation somehow or other to become a jazz musician. Some you know, a couple months short of 12 years old. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes I ask these questions and I get answers that are so epic that I may never have to ask it again, and that's the best one I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's, that's like a spaceship to another planet. Um, and at 12, what a formative age to see that. So, yeah. um, I, I mean, I tell, I tell my students that story and their jaws drop, but yeah. at, that, at that time, bills like that were not all that unusual. Yeah. Now they yeah, would be I, unaffordable, but, but, but at the time they were still fairly common. You know, it's interesting because, um, some friends of mine that I know out here in the Kansas City area, they have a good friend that just passed away, and he was a big jazz aficionado. He was like a local reporter, but he had this unbelievable jazz collection. I went to his house last week just to evaluate. He had original copies of Love, of a Love Supreme, a McCoy Tyner album, all of this stuff. It's unbelievable uh -huh. I'm looking at. And I saw a poster for an old Kansas City jazz fest back in the 80s, and we have this thing called Brush Creek that's at, in the plaza, and they used to have major national acts that came through, and my wife looked at the poster and was like, how are these people here, like Count Basie and all these other people? I said, they did it all the time. These cities had budgets that would afford them, because of culture, to pay these bands, and that's what they did. It's a model that the Europeans use now. You know, they, they, they put a high reliance on art and culture and getting acts to do that. And that used to happen. Anyway, I don't want to divert too much, but I think about what you said about festivals where it would blow the young people's minds, but that was commonplace at a certain point, yeah. you know, all over the place. So. Yeah, well, there's still a certain amount of that. I did the Chicago Jazz Festival in 1987 with my nonette and Sheila Jordan as a guest soloist. And I mean, Chicago still does that festival every Labor Day weekend. Uh, and they, the city puts up a big budget and they bring in musicians from all over the world and it's a very big deal. But, but as you said, it's a municipality putting up the bread. So you move on to Washington, D.C., and then you make your way to New York City in 1980. Um, well, well, before that, I, I went to college in New York. Okay, gotcha. So from 71 to 75, then I went to D.C. for five years, then I came back to New York in 1980. Was that always your goal, to be in the middle of the cauldron of jazz being in New York City? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I came to New York in 71, uh, and, you know, I, w I was an English major in college. It was kind of my excuse to be in New York was to come to college here, but, but basically just I wanted to be in New York where the music was happening. As soon as I got here, I started taking private lessons with Lee Konitz, the great alto saxophone player who just died last year. Um, and he became a friend for the rest of our lives. Um, and he was a big influence on me just in turning my head around as a player. And, and you know, I started, I mean, within six months of being in New York, I, I'll just give you an idea of, of what I heard. I mean, I, I heard the, the first six months I was here, I heard me playing with uh, Lamont Young, the minimalist. Um, I heard the Elvin Jones Quartet with Joe Farrell, Dave Liebman, and Gene Perla, the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra at Monday nights at the Vanguard, Charles Mingus's all-star big band at Philharmonic Hall with uh, Jerry Mulligan, Lee Konitz, Gene Ammons, Joe Chambers, John Fattis, um, and um, Sonny Rollins' Quartet at Vanguard with Albert Bailey, Larry Ridley, and David Lee. Uh, and this is the first six months I'm in New York and on a college kid's budget. So, I mean, this is a small fraction of what was going on. So wow. anytime, I, anytime I see somebody say that uh, the 70s were uh, a low point for jazz, I get really pissed off because, I mean, it was a really rich period. It's just that um, you had to be there to know what was going on. You know, as an educator, what have you learned from the likes of, like, Sheila Jordan and so many of these big names that you've actually had the chance to play with? What did they teach you about not only jazz, but being a, being a, being a person, um, an artistic person that has helped you as you teach younger musicians? Oh, good question. Uh, well, part of it is, Somebody like Sheila is a good example because she's she's lived the life her entire life. I mean, she's 92 now and still going strong, and she's devoted her life to this music. I mean, even during the, the, the many years when she was working at Daygate as a secretary because she had a, she was raising a, a child as a single mother, but even during those times, she was totally devoted uh, devoted to the music. But there's, a, there's an entire attitude that you've got to have in, in, in order to make that work. And, and you know, it, it has, it, it's a selflessness, and it's an openness to uh, change and, and to development and, and to just being, being there in the moment. I mean, I, I, I've never known anybody who's more in the moment and more open to spontaneity than Sheila is. That comes out in her music. That comes out in her personality. Uh, you know, it's it's a wonderful thing to to see and hear. You know, I will tell you personally when I interviewed Sheila for the first time, she is she is a go getter, and from the word go, um, I just could feel that that fierceness and that intensity mm -hmm. that she has for being alive and stories of bird and those things. And I remember those th those were. That was one of the interviews where I got off the phone and I was like, that is a force, a human force right there. Um, oh, you bet. Well, Charlie, yeah, Parker said that she, Charlie Parker said that Sheila had me in all her ears. 
Yeah, and I think she may have even mentioned that to me as well. You know, you've been at this for a long time. We are in this pandemic COVID-19 self-reflective world. Quite, quite a big mirror has been plopped, whether we like it or not, in front of our lives during this time. And especially for jazz. Jazz has had to adapt and lots of things have changed. But, you know, jazz is an improv. And if there was any art that was probably ready for this, it could be the jazz musicians. So my question to you is this. How will jazz emerge stronger once we get out of this pandemic? <laughs> wow, if I knew the answer to that question, I could, I, I could market my crystal ball and make a lot of money very quickly. <laughs> you could go to Vegas and retire. <laughs> right. Uh, I, the, my, my honest answer is I have the foggiest idea. Uh, but it's the question that everybody I know is asking. We'll just have to wait and see and, and, and follow wherever life takes us and wherever, you know, the, the music takes us and, and and just being open to whatever changes happen. And, and they already are happening. But there's no question about that. I mean, things are never going to be what they were because, among other things, just, for example, with, with teaching, uh, as a result of all of us going online, to, in, in, to, as far as college teaching is concerned, we've discovered that we can do a lot of what we did face-to-face uh, over the Internet. I, mean, I, can, I can teach an academic course uh, like my Music of Duke Ellington and my Music of Miles Davis courses. I can teach those over Zoom and do about 99% of what I did in the classroom. You know, I, I can, you know, I, I, I can look at my students over Zoom. I can play the music with reasonable fidelity. I can ex- exchange ideas with them. I mean, there's no reason, for example, why I have to do a three-hour three round-trip commute to go to school. Currently, I'm talking with both of my schools about that because my health is not the greatest, frankly, and uh, it would make my life infinitely easier if I could just continue to teach online uh, even after the pandemic is over. So I'm talking to both schools about doing that. There are a lot of people in a lot of vocations who have discovered that they can do what they do from home just as effectively and not have to do all the commuting and whatever that, that they were doing forever. Let me ask you this. What, what do you look forward to the most being a professional musician when you wake up every day? What is it that has motivated you all these years being a musician? Oh, hearing new music, performing new music, writing new music, being in contact with people who are doing what I'm doing, uh, educating people who are just coming up and, and, and getting them to things that they weren't aware of. Uh, you know, one of my great pleasures is uh, introducing young people in particular to music and musicians that they weren't aware of. Uh, that, that's one of my great joys in life. I love to play disc jockey. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, I can send them links to, to stuff that they haven't heard, and it's like 
you can see the light bulbs go off. Yeah. Uh, in their heads, just, you know, oh, you know, it, it's, it's like, uh, here's something I didn't know before. So, you know, that, that's, that's one of the great joys of, of my life as, as, a, as a musician and an educator. So as we get back to live music when the world starts opening up and, you know, musicians are on stage and people are back in the crowd, what do you hope we all collectively realize with this year-plus absence of live music? What do you hope we realize about the power of live music when we get back? Well, we'll never take it for granted again, will we? That's yeah. probably the most important thing. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, live music has been for the most part, dormant for the past year is, I mean, nobody ever dreamed this was going to happen. But it has, and, and, and it's made a profound impact on all of our lives. And I think people realize just how important the arts are in all of our lives. Uh, and we'll never take that for granted again, I hope. Uh, Maybe I'm being too optimistic in that respect, but I hope we won't ever take it for granted. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think it is. I think it's realistic, definitely. So after all these years of doing what you do, everyone has a perception of who they think you are, your family, your friends, fans, students, but ultimately you're the one that's living your life. You lead your vessel. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Wow, that's a, that's an that's an interesting, profound question that I've never been asked quite that way. Uh, I well, I guess as as a human being, I'm everything that I am. Of course, as, as an artist, I'm kind of a composite of everything that I've accomplished in a half century of being in this music. I've I've been a a lead player, a composer, arranger a band leader, a jazz historian, a record producer, a radio producer, and an educator. And I've done all of, I've done things in all of those subsets uh, on a world-class level. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not on an ego trip. I could point to people who have done things in every one of those areas better than I have. Uh, but at the same time, I've managed to do things in all of those areas uh, on, a, on a world-class level, and I'm proud of that. That's, that's kind of my, my contribution uh, to, to, to this music. Beautiful. Phil, hey, thank you again for reaching out to Neon Jazz. Thanks for taking some time out. Good luck with everything as we move forward. Okay. Well, all the best, and... Uh, Look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in Ohio, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Bill for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
Leon Jez.